Well, thank you, Wade. Good morning. How's everybody? Good, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope you're doing well. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 22, starting in verse 19. We are in a little series on the Psalms, and uh, Psalm 22 is the only one that we've actually split in half. Why did we do that? Well, one, it's super long, and two, it's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So we didn't feel as though we could just skip it. And so we're going to be uh, finishing up this psalm today. While you're turning there, I want to uh, tell you about a buddy of mine who is also in ministry. He's a guy that I worked with at a previous church. His name is Blake. And I really, really like Blake. He's a friend of mine because he loves to be goofy. He loves to tell jokes and he loves to play pranks and all these kind of things. So one time I was in a staff meeting and he came in late. And one of the other pastors said, hey man, why are you late? And he said, well, I fell asleep in the shower. And I said, now wait a second, I understand falling asleep in the bathtub, you're laying down. But to fall asleep in the shower, you either just fall asleep standing up or you decide, I think I'm gonna lay down for a bit. I think I'm just gonna rest my eyes under this cool misty rain, right? Another time I went and actually preached at his church. He pastors a church out in College Station and here's how he introduced me. Because I was teaching on the Reformation, I was giving a lecture on the Reformation. He said, this is my buddy Zach, he used to be a Catholic priest but he got fired because he would just wear the clerical collar, but no shirt. That's how he introduced me, okay? So he likes telling jokes. He likes doing these kind of things. One time we were getting ready for a staff meeting at this previous church and we met in this room that had several couches, okay? So he got there a few minutes early and he said, hide me in the couch cushions. So we, so we lift out the couch cushions like the ones you sit on and he lays down, he's a pretty skinny guy. So he lays down and we put the cushions back on it and then we just kind of sit on the couch and wait for other people to sit on the couch. So as everyone's coming in, people are like, they're sitting on the couch, but you can't see him. It just seems like kind of a lumpy couch. So after there's like four people sitting on him, he just goes, ah, and he grabs them by the arms inside the couch, okay? Now, what does that have to do with Psalm 22? Bear with me. When reading Psalm 22, you'll have a tendency to say, is this Psalm about David or is this Psalm about Jesus? And that's kind of like asking, is there just a couch here or is there also a man? You see, as you approach this psalm, you think you're just sitting on the David couch and a Jesus grabs you, okay? That there is a man inside that couch and it's not just about David, it is also ultimately about Christ. What Psalm 22 is gonna teach you how to do is it's gonna teach you how to worship God when you are suffering. We know how to worship God when we're happy. This is gonna teach you how to worship God when you're suffering and who is the ultimate man of sorrows? Who is the ultimate suffering servant? It's Christ, So this text isn't just about David, nor is it just about Christ, it's about both. So let me let me pastor explain something to you real quick. Let's do a little theology before we get into this. When it comes to the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament passages that talk about Christ, there's really two ways to approach it. The first is what is called census plenier. Okay, that is some theologians mispronounce it census plenois. It's not French, it's Latin. Census plenier means fuller sense. And so what some theologians do is they will say, when a prophecy or when a psalm is talking about somebody, it's just talking about its original audience, but God, the divine author, intends something more to the text to make it talk about Christ. So whereas the biblical author, when it says, out of Egypt I called my son, is just talking about Israel, God is actually meaning that to be the literal son, the second person of the Trinity. Or whereas Isaiah will talk about the virgin will be with child, meaning just this young woman in his day, we know that the ultimate meaning is an actual virgin in the Virgin Mary. Now, that way of approaching scripture is not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily bad uh, or any of those kind of things. Here's where that way of approaching scripture is dangerous. It can cause you to separate the meaning of the human author from that of the divine author. 
You don't want to do that. Because all of a sudden you can say, yeah, yeah, I know what Jeremiah means, but God might mean this weirdo interpretation, okay? <clears throat> the better way to interpret the Old Testament and in light of Christ is simply this. What Jeff talked about last week, what is called typology. Here's a good way to think about it, okay? All of the Bible is about Jesus, Every time you're reading the Old Testament, you better not just be reading the Old Testament. You better be thinking, how does this apply to Jesus? The story of David and Goliath isn't about how the little football team can beat up the big football team. It's about how Israel needs a deliverer because they can't conquer their enemies. So an anointed Messiah king, David, comes and delivers him. Does that sound like anybody else? Sounds like it comes to deliver them. Or the story of Moses, that God sends this deliverer to lead his people out of slavery. All of the Bible is about Jesus and so you should always be looking for Jesus on every page. Jesus himself says this. On the road to Emmaus, he talks about how all the Old Testament is about him. The Bible says all the promises of God find their yes and amen in whom? In Christ, in Jesus. Uh, Paul says that when the Old Testament is read Jew, to Jews, they have a veil over their eyes. They can't read it rightly, that that veil is only removed in Christ. Jesus is the interpretational, the hermeneutical key to the whole Bible. So is this about David? Yes, but because God wants you to read all of the Bible about Jesus, it's also about Christ. Old Testament scholar Marvin Tate says this, the sufferer of Psalm 22 is a human being experiencing the terror of mortality in the absence of God and the presence of enemies. In the suffering of Jesus, we perceive Jesus entering in and participating in the terror of mortality. He identifies with the suffering and the dying, but in deliverance through death achieved the resurrection. And it is that deliverance which is the ground of praise both for the sufferer and for the great congregation. So as we read this, I'm gonna primarily talk about its immediate context. What do we do when we are suffering? But I want you to always be in your mind applying this to Christ. Let's pray and then we'll get into the text. Almighty God, I just confess that I need help, that I didn't sleep well, and so I've got a little bit of the fog of war in my mind. I ask for a clarity of thought and a clarity of speech. I thank you for uh, this text. I pray that it would encourage us because we are people that are often in despair, that are often suffering. We love you, we thank you. It's in Christ's name, amen. Verse 19, let's get started. It says this, but you, O Yahweh, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Let's start in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Here's the first thing that you need to know if you're going through some type of suffering. By the way, are you going through some type of suffering? I would, I would bet a lot of people in here are going through some type of suffering. Maybe it's financial. Maybe you've lost your job because of this whole COVID thing. Maybe it's physical. You have some type of illness or ailment. Maybe you have issues in your marriage and it just seems like it gets worse and worse. Maybe you have issues with your kids. Maybe it's mental or emotional. You have some type of psychological thing where you're always anxious or you're always nervous or you're always afraid. I guarantee you, anytime you talk on suffering, you have an audience. Here is the very first thing that David is going to tell us that we should do in suffering. Last week, he listed all his sufferings. Today, we start to see the solution. Here's the very first thing the Bible would tell you to do. Cry out to God for deliverance. Get down on your face and beg God to move. If you're going through some type of suffering, the first thing you should do is try to get out of the suffering, okay? You will suffer enough in life without you, you know, adding extra suffering to you. The very first thing you should do is to ask God for deliverance from the suffering. If you can get out of suffering, do it. If there's a medicine you can take that can make you feel better, take it. If you have a bad job and you need another one, go get another job. If you can get out of the suffering, do so and ask God to deliver you. But let me pastorally say this. 
what happens when you've done that for years and the darkness will just not lift? Where you have cried out to God, please deliver me, and the anxiety hasn't gone away. Please deliver me, and the marriage has gotten worse. Please deliver me, and your kids are really, really struggling with something. Please, the the cancer treatments are not working. What then do you do? Here's what you do. You worship God. Your job is not to get yourself out of the suffering. That's God's job. Your job is to worship in the suffering. Sometimes when you're down in this pit, God won't get you out of the pit, although that's what you're asking. Get me out of the pit. Get me out of the pit. Sometimes what God is doing is teaching you that he loves you at your worst, that he loves you when you are down into the pit. So what David does, in light of the fact that his enemies have surrounded him and he feels forsaken by God, he cries out, help, help me, deliver me, be with me. Let's look at the next part, verses 20 through 21. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What is going on here with all these animals, okay? Why is he mentioning bulls or oxen? Why is he mentioning dogs? Why is he mentioning lions? What is the deal? Well, he's describing his enemies as these wild beasts. We actually saw this earlier in Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 12 through 13, and then verse 16 says this. Many bulls, that's the oxen idea, encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. There's the lions. Verse 16, for dogs, there's the dogs, encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, we understand David describing his enemies as bulls because his enemies are strong. We understand David describing his enemies as lions because lions are ferocious. What hits us as strange as a Western modern audience is calling them dogs. And here's why, because we have a positive view of dogs, right? Dogs to us, they're man's best friend. You have scruffy, you know, scruffy, or you have little bootsy, and you put them in a little sweater, and you let them eat at your table like a psycho, and we just love dogs, right? We love dogs, they're great, we clean them, and we do all these kind of things, we love dogs. That is not the view of dogs in the ancient world, okay? In the ancient world, here's the closest analogy I can give you. When you're driving down the road, and you see like this rabid coyote that's out in the middle of the day, how you think of that is how the ancient world thought of dogs, This mangy, disease-ridden, they eat trash. Several Greek authors describe them as eating dead bodies, okay? So dogs are seen as these, these gross, terrible things. Why is David calling his enemies dogs? Here's why. Because dogs in the Bible is often used as a way to talk about someone who's not a believer, as someone who's in grotesque sin. Let me give you a few examples. Deuteronomy 23, 18. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. What is the wages of a dog? Like a dog brings you a bag of money and God is like, I don't want that. Do not put that in my temple. Okay, a dog is a Hebrew idiom for a male prostitute. Okay, so he's saying don't take money from whether a female prostitute or the male prostitute and use that in God's house. Philippians 3, 2. Look out for the dogs, Paul calls them. Who are the dogs? The next phrase clarifies. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, meaning teaching that in addition to faith in Christ, you must be circumcised or follow the Mosaic law. Revelation 22, 14 through 15. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Look who's outside. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Okay? Sometimes I get asked as a pastor, Zach, will all dogs go to heaven? Do dogs go to heaven? And I just quote Revelation 22 
where it says the dogs are outside of the New Jerusalem, okay? All right, it's a joke, okay? Your, your dog, but just let me clarify, your dog will not be in heaven. Your dog does not have a soul like you. There might be animals in the new heavens and new earth, the wolf lies down with the lamb, etc. but it won't be Bootsy, okay? Bootsy is worm food by then, okay? Now, so having said that, your cat will certainly go to hell. If you need that, if, you're, if you were waiting for that, you needed that. What does he mean by dogs? He means somebody unrighteous, somebody who doesn't know God. That's what he means by these further clarifiers. Goliath taunts David and says, do you come at me, or do you think that I'm a dog, that you would come at me with a stick? Jesus, because he is a Jew talking to a Gentile woman, calls her a dog and not a child of uh, uh, Israel and these kind of things. So here's simply what David is saying. He is saying, deliver me from my enemies. They're evil, they're ferocious, and they're stronger than me. How do you apply this today? Whatever enemies you have, human or demonic, ask God for protection. Maybe you have somebody who is awful to you, somebody who's been abusive to you. Maybe you have somebody who is uh, a terrible boss at work, whatever. Ask God for grace. Ask God for this deliverance. Or maybe you're being spiritually attacked. Maybe you feel like uh, it's not just your normal temptation, it's heightened. It's not just your normal anger, it's heightened. Maybe you're under some type of spiritual attack. What we see here is a crying out for God to deliver. Now look at the last phrase of verse 21. This one gets really weird here. He says, save me, from the mouth of the lion, we see that. And then he says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. What is happening? Has David been delivered from his enemies or not? He says, save me. And then he says, thank you, you've already saved me. What's happening here, okay? Here's what David is doing. David is probably still in whatever suffering he's in. He's still surrounded by his enemies, but he so trusts in the promises of God that he's acting as though his prayer has already been answered. When God promises you something, you can take it to the bank. He doesn't always promise that he'll get you out of suffering. He does promise he'll be with you in the suffering, but he doesn't promise to take you out of it. Let me give you an example. You ever seen the movie Captain Phillips? Everybody should be shaking their heads that's not a little kid because there's violence and stuff, whatever. So it's a great movie, great movie. Captain Phillips, he is taken captive. His ship is taken over by Somali pirates and he is taken captive and he is put on this little tiny lifeboat. So in this little tiny lifeboat that's covered, You have three Somali pirates with automatic weapons, AK-47s, and you have Captain Richard Phillips, okay? And so what they do, the Navy has to come up with a plan to try to rescue him, to try to rescue him. So they get SEAL Team 6, a Tier 1 unit from Virginia, have them go 8,000 miles, jump into shark-infested waters to help deliver Captain Phillips, okay? And what they do is they tell the pirate, the pirates are running low on food, the pirates are running low on water, the pirates are feeling seasick, and so what they say is, let us bring you some supplies. Let's bring you some supplies. And the pirates are like, okay, no funny business. And so the Navy crewmen that actually go to bring them supplies are not just regular Navy crewmen, they're Navy SEALs. And so what they do in the movie is they show up and they give them food, they give them these things and they give Captain Phillips this yellow shirt and they say it's very important that you wear this shirt and that you stay in the same seat that you are. Do you understand? And then the last thing the Navy SEAL says before he leaves is he says, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then what happens? Something awesome, okay? Three Navy SEAL snipers from a moving ship to a moving boat at night fire at the exact same second and get three headshots and deliver Captain Phillips. Outstanding, okay? It actually happened, outstanding. If one of them fires late, they'll kill Captain Phillips. If one of them misses or doesn't get a clean headshot, you'll get that jerk reaction, they'll kill Captain Phillips. But literally said, everything is gonna be okay because he knows what's coming. 
He knows what's coming. And in one moment, boom, three shots, three headshots, three bad guys drop, and they save Captain Phillips. When he says, you're going to be okay, he knows he's going to be okay because he knows what's planned. How much greater is God? How much stronger are God's promises when God says, look at me, you're gonna be okay. You're going to make it. I will never leave you or forsake you. You are forgiven, you are loved, everything is going to be okay. David knows he can take it to the bank, which is why he says, deliver me. And I know that in a sense you already have. I know that in a sense you already have. Verses 22 through 24. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Let's look at those first two verses there, 22 and 23. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. So here's the first thing we've seen when you're going through suffering. You cry out to God for his deliverance and you know that God will be with you. You can take that to the bank. Here's the second thing that David does. It's corporate worship. It is corporate worship. It is to proclaim God's name to others. It's not just to worship in his closet by himself. It's to declare the praises of God to others. You need to be talking about God's praise and you need to hear others talk about God's praise. Corporate worship is one of the things that God has given you to fight against sin, Satan, and death, okay? God has given you this. Sometimes we have a tendency to think, I'm not doing well spiritually. I'm not gonna go to church today. I need to clean myself up first. That is the opposite of what you should do. This is not a country club. It is a hospital for sick people. So if you feel sick, come here spiritually. If you're physically sick, (laughs) stay home for two weeks or whatever it is, okay? This is where you should be. So occasionally, if you come into my office and you say, Zach, I'm really struggling with my faith. I don't know that I'm a Christian. I don't know that I wanna stay married anymore. I don't know what's going on. Here's what I'll ask you. When did you stop coming to worship? When did you stop reading your Bible? When did you stop praying? When did you stop taking communion? Because the answer always somehow goes to that. If you're not gonna use the means of grace that God has given you to work through these things, then there's nothing else I can give you. David knows that what he needs in his suffering is not so much to get out of the suffering, it's to worship God in the suffering. And this passage is applied to Christ. Why does he say, I'll tell of your name, uh, I will tell of your name to my brothers? What David means by that is fellow Jews. That's what he means by brothers. This passage is applied to Christ in the book of Hebrews. Not because God has more than one son, Christ is the only begotten son of God, but talking about in his humanity, okay? Because Jesus truly became human and specifically a Jew, it's talking about the, the, the praises that he's proclaiming to Israel, to fellow Jews is kind of the idea that's there. Look at verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Here's what you need to see in this text. And if you need to underline this text, please do so. God always cares, and he always hears you when you're suffering. There are times when you're going through some type of suffering where it just feels like your prayers are bouncing off of the ceiling. You can't pray hard enough you can't cry hard enough, you can't curse loud enough, it just feels like the sky has become steel and God is not hearing your prayers. Here's what you need to hear. God always hears your prayers. He always cares. He always hears your cries. If he's not responding, it's not because he doesn't care if you're a child of God, if you're, if you're someone who's a Christian. 
It's because God knows what's best for you and he a lot of times will not tell you what he's doing so you have to trust him and not your understanding of the circumstance. Not your understanding of the circumstance. Let me, lead you, let me read you some lyrics <clears throat> from a Christian song that I like. I don't know if the author is weird or not, so if so, sorry, I just like these words. It's a song called Your Hands. Here are the words. I have unanswered prayers. I have trouble I wish wasn't there. And I have asked a thousand ways that you would take my pain away. When you walked upon the earth, you healed the broken, lost, and hurt. I know you hate to see me cry. One day you will set all things right. When my world is shaking, heaven stands. When my heart is breaking, I never leave your hands. That's what David is saying in verse 24. Now, I need to clarify something in verse 24 that I normally wouldn't have to clarify, but it's 2020 and everybody's become stupid, so I have to clarify it here. When it says that God has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, okay? When this psalm talks about the afflicted or the oppressed, let me clarify this because our culture has a very weird definition of the oppressed. If you didn't listen to Jeff's lesson today on biblical versus social justice, you need to listen to it on repeat because it is excellent, okay? There is a sense in which any time an injustice is done, whether the people are Christians or not, that God is offended, okay? In a Muslim country where there's two Muslims and one rips the other one off in business, that is an offense. So you need to hear me say that. But God is only ever on the side of the righteous oppressed. There's nothing inherently good about being oppressed. There's righteous oppression and unrighteous oppression. When Israel is fighting against the pagan nations, okay? Israel is oppressing them. God is not on the side of the oppressed pagan nations. He's on the side of Israel. Or when Israel is leaving Egypt and the plagues oppress the Egyptians, God is not on the side of all the oppressed. God is on the side of the righteous oppressed. That's the first thing you need to hear. If you don't know Jesus, God is not on your side, period. Okay? The other thing you need to wrestle with is who is actually oppressed? Who is actually oppressed? Because in the Bible, it's not just permanent classes of people. It it varies. Let me give you an example. If a man sexually assaults a woman, she is the victim and we and God are on her side, okay? If a woman falsely accuses a man of sexual assault, then he is the victim. She is the victimizer and he is the oppressed. She is the oppressor. And then in that case, we would be on his side and so would God. If a police officer were to actually murder someone who's black unrighteously in an unjustified shooting with malice intent or something like that, we would be on the side of that black man, and so would God. If a black man, however, murders a police officer, then we're on the side of the police officer, and so is God. So God is on the side of the oppressed, but you have to ask who is actually oppressed, and it changes from circumstance to circumstance, okay? But the ultimate oppressed group in the Bible are God's people. It's Christians. When David talks about the oppressed, he always means Israel. He always means, he means the righteous oppressed, those who are in league with God. Look at verse 25 through 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Look at verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. A few things in verse 25. First of all, what does the first part of verse 25 mean? From you comes my praise in the great congregation. God gives me that praise. I praise God because of what he's done. What does that mean? You see, there are some passages that are unclear and you can tell what it means. There are others that are different. So one of the things my daughter, who's three, will say to me, she'll say, will you come sit right by next to me? 
And we're like, that is adorable. Never say that differently. Will you come sit right by next to me? And I know exactly what she means. She's mixing sit by me and sit right by me and all these other things together, okay? In Hebrew, the first part of verse 25 literally says, from with you my praise. What? Well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, David. What'd you say? From with you my praise? What does that mean? What does that mean? Here's what it most likely means. And I think the New English translation does, uh, does this well here. You are the reason I offer praise is what that first part means. Okay? David has listed the good things that God has done and what he's saying is my worship of you is in response to the fact that you have been good to me first. That's always the case in Christianity. God is good to us. God saves us. God loves us. God gives us mercy and the worship is a response to that. It's not something we do so that God will like us or something like that. Now, if you look at the next part of verse 25, it says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. This next part is confusing. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. What does that mean? My vows I will perform. So here's something you need to understand. In the Old Testament, they have some things that they do in worshiping God that we typically don't do today. So what are some ways that we worship God today? You can shout it out. We sing, excellent. What's another way we worship God? Offerings, yes, we give, uh, we give uh, financially to the church. That's not a staff member that planted that there, by the way. <laughs> That's just, uh, okay, what else? Communion, Bible reading, prayer, evangelism, even your job. You can drink orange juice to the glory of God. You can send an email to the glory of God. Everything you do, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. Yes and amen. In the Old Testament, though, they have things that we don't have today, like animal sacrifices. And here's something that's really common in the Old Testament, is worshiping God through vows. This is something we're not very familiar with today. What you would do in the Old Testament is, as part of worship, you would say, God, if you deliver me, if you give me this thing, then in response, I will fulfill this vow. I will praise you publicly. Or in this case, his vow might be to feed the poor because the next line will say, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. But it's this idea that, God, as part of my worship, I'm swearing by your name to do something. And if I don't do it, may you judge me. And if I do it, may you bless me. That's the idea of vows here. As a little aside, if I ask you what certain commandments of the 10 commandments mean, so if I say, what does it mean not to steal? You can probably give me a good answer. If I say, what does it mean not to commit adultery? You can probably give me a pretty clear answer. But here's a commandment I've realized most Christians have no idea what it means. Ready? That you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does that passage mean? What does it mean? Think for a second. It's one of the big 10. What does it mean? I've heard Christians say all kinds of weird stuff. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that when you're cursing, you shouldn't use God's name. Well, I certainly agree with that. That's That's not what that passage means. But yes, if you're doing your cursing, please leave God's name out of it, okay? Well, I think that it means uh, that you're a hypocrite, right? That you're a hypocrite because you're saying that you're a Christian taking God's name and then you're walking wickedly. Well, I also agree that hypocrisy is sin. That's not what that commandment means. Well, I think it's where you say that God told you something he didn't, like being a false prophet. You shouldn't be a false prophet, not what that passage means. Do you know what it actually means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain? And we know this from looking at what Jews thought that it meant. Uh, The Jewish uh, historian Philo gives a very clear definition of this. Taking the name of God in vain to Jews originally meant something like this, that when you swear your oaths by God, you must keep those oaths. It goes along with not not bearing false witness. So if if I take God's name, to take it means take it as a vow. If I say I hereby swear before God, this is what has happened, and I break that, I've broken one of those commandments. That's the idea of vow keeping in the Old Testament. Now, verse 26. By the way, let me give a clarifier before I move on. He's not bartering with God. 
He's not, he's not saying, God, if I do this, you'll give me this. You don't ever give anything to God. God doesn't need anything from you. He's not your genie, okay? What he's simply saying is, please deliver me and you will see that the result is worship out of my heart. The result will be God saves us, then we walk in righteousness, not the other way around. That's kind of the idea here. Look at verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. We've seen that what we do in suffering, first we cry out to God, we've seen that. Next we worship God in the corporate assembly, we've seen that. Here's something that we often miss. We toast to the joy of God. This is a toast, right? It's similar to Luke 6, 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. That part of what we're to do in the suffering is have these hopeful hearts in the mercy and glory of God. Do you know what a toast is? Because that's what's happening when he says, may your hearts live forever. You almost imagine him raising a glass and saying, may your hearts live forever. A toast, we don't do it much in America. We do it at like weddings and then like your, you know, your dumb best man says something stupid or whatever. But in the ancient world, you would do toast frequently. A toast is where somebody says something good and then people agree. That's the idea of a toast. Let me read you some. I looked some up online because I thought this idea of toasting as worship to God was interesting. Here's a great toast. May our sons have rich fathers and beautiful mothers. Kind of a toast to self, something like that. Here's one from Francis Bacon. Here's champagne to our real friends and real pain to our sham friends, okay? Good toast there. I read of another one where a guy was giving a toast at a wedding and he said this to the bride and groom. He said, before I finish, I'd like you to turn and face each other. You're now looking into the eyes of the person who is statistically most likely to murder you. To the bride and groom, all right, that was his toast. To the bride and groom. Socrates, the philosopher, has a famous one. By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. And if you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) This is a Yiddish toast. I really like this one. May you never go to hell, but always be on your way there. That's a great one. That's a great toast. And then my favorite one is an Irish one. Here's to a long life and a merry one, a quick death and an easy one a pretty girl and an honest one, a cold beer and another one, all right? It's this idea of toasting. Here's what David is doing. Let me tell you why this is powerful. Part of our response when we're suffering is to raise a glass in the glory of God who cares for us that everything is going to be okay. What he's saying is we're all gonna make it, brothers. God is faithful. You will not, whatever you're suffering with, you will not suffer with it forever. Worst case scenario, it's the end of your short life, but you will not suffer with it forever. And so what he is doing is there's this hope, there's this joy. God is faithful in my suffering. May we be people like that. May we mock death. May we have joy even in difficult circumstances. May we as Christians be those who laugh on our way to the gallows. Let's look at the next phrase. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Notice this prophecy now. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over all nations. Here is David's hope in the gospel. The gospel does center around the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Yes and amen. But that is linked to a bigger story in the Bible known as kingdom. Okay, let me explain it this way. Whoever your leader is, if you have a good leader, things will go well. And if you have a bad leader, things will go poorly. This is why people care about politics. Well, back in Genesis, you have the best leader, God. And guess what? Everything functions well in his kingdom. The animals aren't all eating each other. The humans aren't all fine. Everything is perfect because God is a good king. God's kingdom has come in Eden. God is ruling over his people. Everything is great. 
And then what happens is mankind commits treason. If God is a king, your sin isn't just sin, it's treason, and everything becomes broken. The world becomes warped and twisted. The ground bears thorns and thistles, and everything is broken, okay? But there's this hope constantly in the Old Testament and in the New that God is going to send somebody to redeem the world. He's gonna send a king to reestablish God's kingdom. God's always sovereign. He's always ruled and reigned, but what he is doing is he's stomping out his enemies. That's why Jesus comes. When you're reading all the miracles in the New Testament, it's not because Jesus is just doing like David Blaine Jerusalem street magic. That's not the idea. Rather, what Jesus is doing is reestablishing the kingdom. That's why he's casting out demons because there's no demons in God's kingdom. That's why he's healing the sick because there's no sickness in God's kingdom. That's why he's teaching true doctrine because there's no false doctrine in God's kingdom. Jesus is reestablishing the kingdom of God, which is why he says things like, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. He links it to this bigger kingdom message. And part of that message is that this Jewish Messiah would save the nations. God is not just the God of Israel, which is why Genesis doesn't start in Genesis 12 with the calling of Abraham. God is the God of the whole world. And God uses Israel for a time to reach the world. The church is not a parenthesis in God's plan. Israel is a parenthesis in God's plan, contradispensationalism. And what God is doing is reestablishing his rule and reign in Christ. Let me give you some passages that David would have been familiar with. Genesis 22, 17 through 18, and Genesis 35, 11. Look at God's promise to the nations through Abraham. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, by the way, that word offspring in Hebrew, zarah, is singular, and Paul will say it refers to Christ. Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Deuteronomy 15, six. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Psalm two, eight through nine, which Jeff talked about uh, earlier in this series. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Zechariah 14, nine. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And then a passage that he would not have been familiar with, Revelation 19, 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That's talking about Christ. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. That's the hope. Though God created everything. We messed it up and we broke it. That's why we can't have nice things because we as humans break them. So what God does is he sends Israel. But the problem is that Israel falls into the same sins as the other nation. It's like sending out the Coast Guard to get somebody who's lost at sea and then the Coast Guard get lost at sea. And so God's like, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. So God comes down, the second person of the Trinity while remaining God becomes a man and redeems what's broken. The kingdom has already begun. We're not there yet. We're still waiting for the consummation of the kingdom and the second coming, but the kingdom has already begun in Christ. Verses 29 through 31. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. I'm sorry. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. First of all, I want you to see in verse 29 this. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust. 
even the one who could not keep himself alive. Here's the first thing. You need to see at the first part of this verse, eating is a form of worship in the Bible. That's one of the ones that we didn't name except for when we said communion. Eating is a form of worship in the Bible. It means acceptance, it means fellowship, and it means joy. Who do you eat with? You eat typically with friends and family, right? The same is true in the Bible. There were certain sacrifices that you would offer and either you or the priest would eat part of the sacrifice because you were doing Old Testament communion with God, okay? There's a guy in the Old Testament named Mephibosheth and he's a guy who's lame and by that I don't mean he like tucks his shirt into his jeans. What I mean is he can't walk and David invites him to eat at his table for the rest of his life. What does that mean? That David is saying, I've accepted you. You're one of my own. You're like family. What is the number one charge brought against Jesus? that he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners and what? Eats with them. Because by eating with them, what he's saying is, I love you, I accept you. This is why we sit down and celebrate weddings and the families eat together. This is why we go out to dinner on your anniversary. You celebrate these things. Fun little story, by the way, when, uh, when Katie and I were dating before we were married, we went and looked at wedding rings at this big ring store in Dallas. And I didn't let her pick out the ring, I was gonna do that. I just wanted to see what kind of ring that she liked. And so we go look at these rings and then we go to sit down for dinner. Why? Because we love each other and we're celebrating, right? We're celebrating that we're soon, one day, I will propose and she will not know where that uh, six carat diamond's coming from, okay? She's not have a six carat ring, I'm a pastor. Okay, so, <clears throat> so we sit down at this Asian restaurant after looking at rings and I open the fortune cookie and I kid you not, here's what the fortune cookie said. Reconsider your financial plans, make a budget. Never in my life have I had that. Usually it says something generic like, you'll embark on a great adventure. And I was like, Confucius is trolling me, you know? And I'm trying to figure out, you know, maybe they, they have funny ones you can get, like help, I'm trapped in a fortune cookie factory, whatever, they have funny ones. But this was just a regular one. Anyway, it was expensive. The, 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 the point I'm making, the point I'm making, eating is worship in the Bible. That's why we take communion. We are, we are eating together because we're family and we're doing so in honor of Christ. And so there's this idea of eating and worshiping together here in this passage, okay? Now, it's weird here when it says, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Now, look at the next phrase. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. I keep adding an extra word down there. What is he saying by saying, the, the prosperous, the wealthy, shall worship God and also the guy that's on death's door, this is what is called a literary device called a merism. What is a merism? A merism is where you talk about two extremes to encompass everything in between. So if I say everyone should be a Cowboys fan, amen? Amen, everyone should be a Cowboys fan from the greatest to the least. That's a merism, okay? That means everyone, everyone in between. That's what he's doing. He's saying that the glory of God will be so universal that not only does it expand to the nations, that all types of people will worship him, from the one who's doing well to the one who's on his deathbed. That's the idea there, okay? Verses 30 through 31, and then we'll be done. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the idea. Not only does God's glory go forth internationally, not only does it go forth to different kinds of people, but here we see it even going forward in time. That it will be, that, that death cannot be the thing that stomps out David's joy because the gospel is gonna go forward. The gospel is gonna go forward to people who are yet unborn, meaning future generations, future generations. Exodus 12, 22 through 27. 
Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. This is talking about Passover. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. Now, what we see here is this idea of Passover. God delivers his people. They remember it for Passover. Check out this next part about the coming generations. And when you come into the land, the Lord uh, will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service, verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Meaning, why do we do this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel uh, in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Not only does the gospel go forward to your literal next generation, for your kids, when your kids say, why do we celebrate Christmas? Why do we celebrate Easter? Why do you eat that wine and that little cracker in church, whatever it is? You get to tell of God's deliverance and glory. But I really think the the main way this passage is applied as David is talking about it going to the nations is through evangelism. That's the primary way we make disciples as Christians is through evangelism. The spiritual family in the New Testament is not like in the Old Testament where there was biological descent. The son of a Jew is a Jew. The son of a Christian is not necessarily a Christian. So the gospel goes forward through evangelism to the nations. That's his hope. In all of Psalm 22, there's this underlying current of hope and resurrection. That's why it talks about all the nations praising God. It's why it talks about even those who go down into the dust will do that. And especially when you apply this to Christ, it's saying death, let me say it this way. For the Christian, death is a speed bump. Death is not scary for Christians. We might be afraid, but we shouldn't be afraid because it is a speed bump that we go through and then there's eternal life and bliss and everything's going to be okay. I often make jokes that are somewhat dark humor and sometimes I shouldn't. You know, it's like at a funeral or something. At other times, at other times I should because we should be in a sense mocking death because our hope is ultimately in resurrection. Now to end, how does this passage apply to Christ? We've seen it in David's day. We've applied it to us. We're going through our suffering. We ask God for deliverance. We worship God. We toast to the, the confidence we have that God is good, that God is faithful, that he hasn't changed though our circumstances are awful. There's this hope that the gospel goes to the nations. Let's see a lot of places where Christ is in this passage as we look again at Psalm 22 as a whole. I'm just gonna mention some to you. Again, we put the text on the screen for you to follow to make it easy. Please bring your paper Bible if you can so you can flip to different places. But I just wanna mention a few places that point not just to David, but to Christ. In verses one through two, it's Jesus who cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not just David. In verses six through seven, it's Jesus who is the ultimate man of sorrows. Who is the ultimate man where somebody walks by and they mock him and they spit on him and they make fun of him and they make faces at him? It's Jesus on the cross. They're the ones who, his enemies mock him and say he saved others, let him save himself. Verse 16 references hands and feet being pierced. Jesus' hands and feet are pierced. Verse 18 talks about garments being divided, that they cast lots for my clothing. Jesus' garments are gambled for by the soldiers crucifying him. They're crucifying him up on the cross and his clothing, they play like an ancient version of dice to figure out who gets to keep his clothing, which is mentioned here in this passage. Verses 19 through 21 show this hope and this future hope in God that Jesus is the ultimate one who's vindicated through resurrection. Verse 22, Jesus has taken on true humanity while remaining God and therefore he proclaims the gospel to the assembly to save humans. 
Verses 25 through 26, Jesus brings in prosperity and life for those who know him. Verses 27 and 28, Jesus is the true king of the world that all nations submit to him, that he rules the nations with a rod of iron. Verses 29 through 31, Jesus' church preaches the gospel to all. Like we saw at the beginning where we're looking at this couch and you say, is it fully a couch or is it also fully a man? It's both. And in the same way, this is David crying out in suffering, but it's ultimately about Christ because he's the ultimate man of sorrows, the ultimate sufferer who has his hope in God and is vindicated at the resurrection. That's the meaning of Psalm 22. Let's pray and then we will enter into a time of communion. Almighty God, we thank you for this text. I pray right now that if there is somebody here who does not know Jesus, who thinks that being a Christian is about being a good person, would repent of that evil belief that thinks that they need to clean themselves up, they need to do better, they need to fix the wrongs in their life. I pray that they would hear this from Jesus when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I pray for those that have heavy yokes today. If there is someone here that does not know you, I pray that you'd convict them that today would be their spiritual birthday, that they would bow the knee and submit to King Jesus. For those that already know you, I pray that you would encourage us. This is a weird season. It's really, really frustrating to exist right now. Would you help us? We need you. We love you. Would you bless this time as we move into communion? In Christ's name, amen.